0: Hi, this is Tony Dejado and this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our own humanity. Alicia Malone is a writer and one of the hosts at Turner Classic Movies. In this conversation, we chat about how women were portrayed in science fiction. Let's explore that in a moment. And today I have Alicia Malone. She is a host on Turner Classic Movies, and they're doing some Really cool things in July every Tuesday, sci-fi movies, some real classics, going back to the silent age. And she's also the author of two books, The Female Gaze, Essential Movies Made by Women. And her first was Backward in Heels, The Past, Present, and Future of Women Working in Film. Welcome, Alicia, to the podcast. It's great to have you.
1: Hi, Tiny. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about all of this.
0: My slant on this is I mean, the movies are classics, there's no doubt about it. And frankly, they've probably been talked to death <laughs> throughout the course of their, of their uh, lives. But I'm kind of interested, since you obviously do care about women in film, kind of talking about how women are portrayed in some of those films. How does that sound? Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's an interesting take. I like it because I am especially interested in 1950s sci-fi movies. For me, that was the real pleasure of getting to do this whole series is, you know, starting from the very beginning of sci-fi and going all the way through, but the 1950s sci-fi movies are the ones that really capture my attention. I find them so intriguing, especially the the monster movies and the alien films.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm really glad you are that TCM is showing Fritz Lang's Metropolis, uh, an amazing yes. film. And of course, Maria, played by Bridget, Brigitte or Bridget Helm, and also Machine Maria uh, in the film. Interesting character. Uh, to me, she kind of uh, is the start of a revolution of sorts.
1: Yeah, she is. I think she's a great female character because You see her at the very beginning coming up from underground with the children, and she is appealing directly to the rich people who live up above, and they have all these privileges that the people below working in Metropolis don't have. And so she's the one that really starts putting the idea in the, the son of the wealthy industrialist's head of starting to figure out what is going on, what he hasn't been privy to. In uh, you know, in his father's business, and then later on, when she is used as the bait, and she becomes this uh, figure for evil, um, I think she is definitely the symbol of the revolution, and she is uh, almost like a Joan of Arc kind of figure, someone that people follow into battle. Although you know, she's been programmed as the evil version of the real Maria, who's locked away somewhere else.
0: <laughs> yeah, really interesting character. I think if there's one scene. That really stands out to me in Metropolis is when you see the workers going to work and they're choreographed walking a certain way, it, to mm-hmm. emphasize the drudgery of it, it still echoes to today that you know so many people are unhappy with their jobs for whatever reason. and it just really uh, it really hit, you know it hit home for me in that scene watching,
1: yeah. I mean, this is such a visually beautiful film that you still watch yeah. today and you marvel at it, you can see directly how it's influenced so many things blade runner is an obvious example but just the the whole german expressionism the way that it's shot Mm -hmm. the way that it's choreographed the big sets production design it's really stark and so impressive especially when you think about it doing it back in 1927 with that amount of extras and it, everything does have a purpose. Like you said, seeing the choreographed workers, you really get the sense of just the day to day drudgery and how they're not really looked at as individuals. They're just these collective, mm-hmm. nameless, faceless workers who are sent to work these really, really long hours. You see the sun, you know, trying to fill in for one of the workers and having to do the task of, you know, moving the hands on the clock for a long time and how painful and tired yeah. that is. And I think today, you know, there's still a lot of issues with workers being exploited, with people working long hours, not having enough time for life, and, and the kind of 1%, you know, enjoying a very different lifestyle than the 99%. So there's a lot that you can still take from this movie today. And I think that's why it remains a classic and hugely influential.
0: Oh, absolutely. So moving into a period that we both love a lot, the fabulous 50s. and. <laughs> yes. There were some great classics, and one at the top of my list is War of the Worlds. Anne Robinson, Sylvia Van Buren, unfortunately, in some ways, emphasize the bad about science fiction, the screaming, hysterical woman, and she is very hysterical in most of the scenes. I will give her a pass on, too, when her uncle is killed, and when a Martian touches her and she finds out about the Martian blood, hey, I'd scream, too, if something like that happened to me. So, I, <laughs> yeah. I'll give her a pass on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like the way that she's introduced. I mean, you think she's going to be a character that has some agency. And this is, of course, the struggle of loving films from the 1950s, particularly these sci fi films, uh, where the women are usually just the ones that are is following the, the male character around, and the male character is the one that gets to have the heroic moments, while the, the female character is more of the hysterical one. And I think that's definitely the case here. Uh, but rewatching this movie was such a pleasure. You know, I'd I'd seen it mm-hmm. a long time ago, and of course, I'd seen the remake um, with Tom Cruise. But here, yep. I was so impressed just with the the way that the aliens were designed. I mean, that alien in that that house. You know, that's a really creepy moment. I definitely would be screaming too.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was great. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I mean, I studied this film on and off and they the heat ray sound was they put a guitar through a synthesizer and that's how they got that sound really curious how they how they did this and obviously they did not have the budget of the tom cruise version uh and certainly to to be able to use that that
1: alien was um on a on a dolly being pulled by the crew and and someone was inside it puppeteering you know there was so much Mm -hmm. that they had to do in a very lo-fi way and yeah sometimes the effects can look a bit silly or campy in today's age but i think they remain impressive and the thing that especially stands out about this film of course is the story i mean that's why it's been updated so many times and um talked about a lot h.g Wells' story is just still still so visceral and um interesting you know the way that they can't they can't kill the aliens and then in the end i like the fact that it's not their doing. It's just a happenstance of bacteria. <laughs> the aliens can't survive here. It's not. That's right. You know, it's not like, let's go kill all the aliens, humans, and Earth prevails. It's more just the fact that they couldn't survive.
0: And Forbidden Planet, I mean, it, it's loosely based on The Tempest by Shakespeare. And I definitely think it inspired a young Gene Roddenberry. It almost looks like a Star Trek episode and introduced me to one of my favorite automatons in Robbie the Robot 2. And we got to talk about Alteria, Alteria, I believe her name, Morbius, Dr. Morbius's daughter, played wonderfully by Anne Francis. What's your take on her?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I love this movie for many reasons. One is definitely the look of it. I mean, you look at her outfits and and just the costuming in general the production design is so beautiful but I really like her character I think Anne Francis does such a good job um and she she brings something extra to the character that I I don't know that a lot of actresses would have done um I think she has much more agency and she's more interesting than many other female characters we see at the time um and she and this is one of those films that you know people still collect the posters uh I, I love all these kind of um, these the, the art, art on all the posters. I'm looking right now at the Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which I have in my place. Oh, yes. And I have a Forbidden Planet one as well because I just love the look of it all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was kind of naive because uh, obviously she has, was not raised with other women or uh, or also other people except her father. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's very naive that way, but she also had a strength to her and to Anne Francis's credit, I can't recall one time in her career, especially when she did Honey West on television, as she played a weak woman. She was always a kick-ass woman and, yeah. and a strong woman, and I appreciated her for that.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from her own personality. I think that shines through. I also love just seeing a young Leslie Nelson. <laughs>
0: Yes, 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 Absolutely. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah, he was really good in that. I like to uh, I like good old JJ Adams. Yeah. And now we go to <laughs> Now we go to um there's a line where uh Robbie talks about uh, all the different languages he speaks and he just says colloquial English will suffice. <laughs> I thought that was. Yeah. He just goes through all these, you know, all these sub tongues and everything. It's really such great dialogue. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the day the day the earth stood still, you know, Klaatu, barata Nikto, but Helen Benson, yeah. Patricia Neal, very rare in the 50s, we saw a single mom uh, in a mm. film. Uh, and, and she, I, I, again, her strength, and she was a strong character. And there was an interesting connection between her and Klaatu. It wasn't romantic, but there was a respect and actually a friendship happening.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's so rare. I mean, you see this film and you might expect that they will end up together. But I love the fact that Klaatu comes in and, and he's almost like a father figure to her son. He's really taking care of him and, and explaining things taking him out for a nice day. But it's it uh, doesn't come across that way with their two characters. There is that immense respect. I mean, she is suspicious of him. Of course, she's thinking about her son and she's not sure of what to make of him towards the end, but then she decides to trust him so much so that she faces a really great fear by walking up to the giant robot. And you can see how terrified she is in that moment, but she's determined to do something and try to try to help Klaatu with his mission. I love that.
0: Oh, me too. And I love that she stood up to Hugh Marlowe's Tom Stevens, and and kind of put yeah. him in his place uh, towards the end of the film too. I thought that was cool. Really, yeah. really a character you can admire all these years later. And uh, you know, bless her for taking that part. I, you know, I'm sure she wasn't offered many parts like that. So I'm I'm sure that's why she jumped on it because it was it was yeah, cool. and
1: a a wonderful actress all the way through her career.
0: Oh, yeah. You have the blob and the original version, I might add, and a young Steve McQueen and uh, his (laughs) CO2 fire extinguishers and, uh, you know, and his girlfriend ended up in Mayberry later on in her career. (laughs) Of course, that is as Jane. I mean, she wasn't totally weak, but, uh, you know, she, um, you know, she was the, the 50s girlfriend, but she wasn't the hysterical female as much as maybe Ann Robinson's Sylvia Van Buren was.
1: Yeah, she wasn't, but yeah, she didn't have much going on. But the thing that I like about The Blob and, and all of these kind of movies, you know, I mentioned Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, all the kind of monster films or the, you know, the, that they stand for something else of the 50s. And you can really look at them and, and you can enjoy them for so the campy, cheesy aspects, but you can also delve into the themes of, you know, fear about the Cold War, fear about the other, yes. fear about the nuclear age, um, and that was all things that were going on at the time in America. So I love the fact that I guess that's something that sci-fi has always done really well is to be able to talk about real-world issues but still deliver a really entertaining concept at the same time Mm -hmm.
0: 2001 a space odyssey i mean they recently brought it back in 70 millimeter which was awesome that's the first time i saw it years ago in 70 millimeter and it's an experience believe me the discovery filling the whole screen and you're just like overwhelmed and you realize it's a model it's not even cg it's amazing great film you know there's been theories and i remember reading a book where Literally, a 17-year-old girl from uh, Plainfield, New Jersey, wrote Stanley Kubrick a letter on her take on the movie, and he was impressed with it. So
1: so that's (laughs) That's kind of great. Yeah, 1001 A Space Odyssey is one of those films that I don't quite understand, but I think it's okay because that's sort of what Kubrick intended, was a film to be experienced and not necessarily torn apart and dissected and and figured out. Um, And, you know, he was very... he he was very cagey about wanting to explain things. I mean, the ending is something that people still debate about, but I love a movie that does that. You can go and see it and then have a great conversation with your friends afterwards. And the fact that it still holds up all these years later, you know, when it was re-released in 70 millimeter, there was still a lot of people going to see it and sometimes for the first time. Mm. And that's really exciting. And you see some of those special effects and you still think, how did they do that? And also it seemed. Quite ahead yeah. of their time. It seemed like they were almost predicting the future. And um, Kubrick, of course, worked with a lot of brands to talk about what their future might look like in terms of products. So it does feel feel very um, ahead of its time. You know, it's hard to believe that it was made in 1968.
0: <laughs> Yes. Well, what a great year for sci fi. That and Planet of the Apes came out that year. Two, two classics. Yes. So that was a good year. What's interesting is this is something I read. I've been reading about this movie for years, but they actually finished the special effects, uh, some of the special effects. Con Pedersen was hired to, to kind of finish some things in an abandoned corset factory on Long Island. True story. <laughs> Truly <It's really laughs> amazing. I
1: didn't know that. That's great.
0: The first line of dialogue in the movie is spoken by a woman. Literally 25 minutes and 38 seconds into the film, and she says, here you are, sir, to Dr. Floyd when he arrives at the space station. (laughs) Other than that, there's no dialogue for almost 26 minutes. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it is amazing the way it starts and it draws you in. And I didn't realize that there was no dialogue spoken for so long until that I read that fact, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, you're right, I didn't even notice. But yeah, this is definitely a film that the uh, the female characters aren't really at the forefront, but uh, it is, it remains very intriguing. Mm
0: hmm. I mean, the only other woman of prominence is Margaret to Elena and her dialogue with Dr. Floyd is kind of fluffy. When are we going to see you visiting mm-hmm. and all that? So, yeah. I mean, other than that, this is pretty much a, a boys club kind of movie.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It's a lot of male characters, even the the robots even the computers.
0: <laughs> yeah. Even Hal. Yeah, I know. I yeah. <laughs>
1: know.
0: Yeah. Not a lot. Of, not a lot of diversity either, I might add, too.
1: No, definitely not.
0: Well, they got that wrong for sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Hi, this is John Delancey, and you are very lucky to be listening to Sci-Fi Talk. Back on Sci-Fi Talk, I'm Tony Tolotto. And then we moved to the pivotal year of 1977, and when Star Wars came out for the first time, we saw a princess that was sassy and told, and told Han Solo to get this walking carpet out. away from me in Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia. That was a game changer for me.
1: It really was. I mean, she has inspired so many young girls, young women who were able to see a woman that was holding her own in this very male-dominated world. Um, I think Carrie Fisher was just such a brilliant casting because she had that real sassiness about her, that very... was intelligent you know on and off the screen um, and she always brought such a, a strength to her characters and you see that with Leia and, and then I love the way that her character evolved over the years and until yes. now when she passed away with general Leia I mean I think she's a rare princess character that we finally got to see <laughs> who is uh, a strong woman but strong without being a masculine sense of the word. <laughs>
0: The scene in the last Star Wars movie where she's in space and all of mm-hmm. a sudden you see her kind of come to life and guide herself back into the into the spaceship. It was absolutely moving uh, and it was absolutely an amazing scene. And, uh, and obviously she had passed away by then by the time I had seen it, but uh, it was just an amazing, amazing scene. And uh, yeah, her evolution, her story on this whole Star Wars saga, You know, after this one, she will be missed, no doubt about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Carrie Fisher and the character both will be missed, and they're so intertwined together. But she is a big part of the reason why that character remains iconic.
0: Iconic is probably the word you'd say for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, (laughs) uh, bringing back Ricardo Montalban and and everything. Um, You know, we all took the Kobayashi Maru test in one way in the movie. Obviously, the death of Spock was... uh, was was a big one you know it was a big one mm-hmm. and the scene was played beautifully as far as the women I thought I'd like Savage because she kind of questioned authority a little bit and was a little sassy and I liked her character and unfortunately we kind of lost a little bit of that in Star Trek 3.
1: Yeah that's true I mean Star Trek Two for me, Wrath of Khan is just all about Khan. <laughs> I love the <laughs> dynamic between <laughs> Captain Kirk or um, Ed, James C. Kirk, and, and Khan in this one. is fun to see Ricardo Maltaban return to this role after so many times, and fun to see an aging, aging star fleet. You know, you finally got to see James Kirk get a bit older, and, and William Shatner said that it was like. Being at a high school union where you suddenly realize how old everyone is Uh, and the death of Spock as well, I think, stands out to me um, as as the biggest part about that. But, yeah, Star Trek 3, we didn't really get that. And, I mean, I think the later versions of Star Trek that we've had now, I know there was one Star Trek that had Alice Eve in where I didn't appreciate her, her character was very, yeah, seemed very male gazy, but um i think the recent more recent star treks so they've tried to focus on bringing out the female characters even more
0: yeah there was really no reason for her to strip down to her underwear in that scene exactly. on, on the shuttle exactly. I, I, <laughs> yeah. it was like what? it's like okay yes she's nice to look at but what does it serve the story well it really doesn't yeah, nothing so, to do
1: with it you
0: know, yeah <laughs> I, yeah it's like star trek took a step back with that one um you know unfortunately like you know Nichelle Nichols Commander Uhura didn't really have a lot to do in two uh he, she had a great scene in three but as far as a character that also stood out to me for really having a good moral center ironically playing the same character that Alice e played Dr. Carol mm-hmm. Marcus in B.B. Bash the the late B.B. Bash
1: yeah I thought she she was really wonderful in that role and um and she was was one of the few, like you said, female characters of interest. I think Ahura. I mean, she didn't get much of a a chance in this film, but of course, you can't underestimate the the massive impact she had as being a woman of color in this really popular series and and films as well. So, I think both yeah. those actresses did did the best that they could within what was a very male-dominated world.
0: Well, it's an interesting way to look at this series of films. Uh, it, it's I'm glad I'm so glad TCM is doing that. What's the experience been like for you to kind of join the team now and and to kind of be involved with something like this?
1: Oh, it's been so wonderful. I mean, TCM was always the dream job for me. It was my my goal and and something that I really was hoping would happen because I just love. I've always loved classic film for one, but I just love yeah. being able to share the stories with the with the audience and being able to, you know, I write my own script. So I go through all the research, watch the films, and then I find the story that speaks to me the most and gets me really excited about the film and put that in the script, mm-hmm. hoping that that then will come across to the audience and will give them something they may not know about the film Um, may, you know, make them even more excited to watch it, may add more context to the film that they're watching. And it's been really fun to do a series like this where I got to start right at the beginning of sci-fi and go all the way through to the late 1970s because you really do see the evolution. I I watched them all in chronological order so you could see how one decade influences the next and I felt like I learned a lot that's really one of the best parts about this job for me is no matter how many films you think you've seen no matter how much you think you know about film there's always so much more to learn and so much more to explore and i love that i get to share it with people who are just as obsessed with classic films as i am
0: now if out of all the ones you're showing is there like a top three that you really really like
1: yeah well as i mentioned the, the 50s so far is my favorite so I think number one for me is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I love that. Oh, really? I it's a very, yeah, very simple <laughs> concept, uh, but it, they do it so well. And I think you could really, um you know, delve into that and, and look at it as far as today. You know, I watched the film again, and then I went out the world, and I saw everyone staring at their phones. And I thought, yeah, we are kind of pod people, aren't we? just <laughs> about, you know, the life emotionless. Um, I really like that film. Um, I also really enjoyed going into some of the, the films that, to celebrate the moon landing, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Yes. Um, For All Mankind from 1989 was a documentary yes. that I'd never seen before. And I love the way that it melds together all the different astronaut stories. So it is about mankind's trip to the moon, not about one singular person or even a singular country, you know, it does talk about the space race with America and the Soviet Union, but it doesn't focus on the fact that America won. It feels like it was very much a, a global effort and a global celebration when they got there. So much interesting footage in that film. Yeah, I didn't realize that the oh, yeah. astronauts shot a lot of stuff themselves on 16 millimeter camera. So that was really fun to see. And then we mentioned The War of the Worlds and The Day the Earth still Those two are also oh, some yeah. of my all-time favorite sci-fi films.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, there's so many, you know, iconic images of the, in War of the Worlds when the ship crashes at the end and you Mm -hmm. see the beams of sunlight in the background very symbolic but and then of course um with claude too when he first zaps all the tanks and everything it was like it's like no cgi folks that's pretty impressive for no cgi you
1: know it's amazing what they did it's just about the the story and the characters and they were able to do so much with special effects but i think having the main focus on the characters it really makes it makes it still exciting to watch, and still you can take a lot from these stories, because they're just great stories.
0: Absolutely. You know, for all mankind, I'm glad you're showing that, because obviously the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and actually I I had the pleasure recently of meeting Neil Armstrong's sons, which was really cool. Oh, wow. Because Apollo... Apollo was a big part of my life. The whole program, and even I'm I'm a little older than you. And even the Gemini program, I remember extremely well. And uh, and some of those same astronauts flew on some of those solo missions. So to see it all again and uh, you know come to fruition was really uh, was really amazing. So uh, it was great yeah. to meet them and and to relive 1969. So it was uh, it mean, was cool. Really, it was really cool.
1: It's really amazing when you think about what they did. You know, with yes. the technology that they had, I mean, they had to be so brave to go out there and not mm-hmm. know if they would make it back or if the, the ship would blow up or, you know, what was going to happen. Yeah. It's it's terrifying prospect, but um, they, yeah, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for them.
0: Oh, man. I know. I mean, the technology, it's like, I think uh, the computer on board the the lunar module, I think our phones have more memory
1: (laughs) right now.
0: It's crazy, isn't it? But that's that's the way it
1: was.
0: (laughs) Is there, uh, before we go, I got to ask you, is there another book in the works?
1: Uh, Not at the moment. You know, I wrote two books in two years. So I felt like I had really uh, burnt out a little bit on writing, but taking a quick break. But i do want to write a book again at at some stage maybe next year it's one of those things where Mm -hmm. after you do it you think oh gosh that was tough will i ever do that again and then a few months later you start thinking about ideas so (laughs) i'm sure i'll be back to writing very soon
0: and you're also a fellow podcaster you have your own podcast as well
1: yeah that's right magnificent obsession is a little podcast that i do just as a passion project where i talk to various people in the film industry try to talk to people from different crew roles whether it's you know a choreographer or a composer to talk about their own yes. love of film how that brought them into the career that they have and also what that job entails of course it's it's hard to always get people because they're on productions <laughs> a lot of them are working sure. on films but uh, I love sitting down with these creative minds and talking to them about the whole process there's so much about the art of making films that i don't know about so even for me it's really fascinating and hopefully people out there find it inspiring too
0: yes yes absolutely well that's great really want to thank you again and i'm so thrilled that uh that turner classic movies has somebody whose roots are very deep in pop culture as one of their hosts now
1: thank you so much no it's such a pleasure to talk to you and anytime i get to geek out about movies particularly sci-fi i'm (laughs) very happy to do that.
0: Yeah, me too. I love it. I do love it. I'm getting ready for Comic-Con, which is the ultimate. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, for a few days, you get to you get to dive into it very deep. So it's going to be fun. <laughs> well, thank you again. And I really appreciate your time and best of luck with Turner Classic Movies and look forward to seeing you host this uh, amazing uh, film series every Tuesday in July. That should be fun.
1: Thank you, Tony.
0: And thank you all for listening to Sci-Fi Talk. This is Tony Tolato. Take care.